chapter 1. And as you make your way there, let's pray and ask for the Lord's blessing upon His preached Word. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Your church. Thank You for this special moment that it is each week in the life of the believer where we gather to hear Your Word corporately proclaimed. Lord, it is a moment where we quiet ourselves, where we worship with closed lips, where you speak and we listen. So Lord, would you quiet the noise in our lives this morning? The thoughts, the discouragements, the distractions, would you silence the outside world and would you bring us back to a garden like Eden this morning? Where we might receive your implanted word which is able to save our souls. Lord, do all of this not to us, but to your name be the glory. We ask these things in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Psalm chapter 1 says this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Every human being is searching for happiness. That means that you have never met a person who is not looking to be happy. We are created with an innate desire in us to search for and find happiness. It's what the American dream is all about. It's what fills up Florida beaches, and Vegas casinos, and Colorado ski resorts, and Disney World. It's why refugees from around the world take risks at a chance for a better life in America. Happiness is what your coworkers are looking for. Happiness is what our children are after. It's what sells self-help books and diet books. It's what fills up gyms at 5 a.m. It's what keeps car dealerships in business and real estate agents busy. And by the way, none of these things are necessarily bad. But the problem is that none of these things in and of themselves, in fact, nothing in all of creation can truly make happy the longings of the human heart. And so this prompts an important question. What will make you happy? What will make you happy? Have you ever asked yourself that? And not just in the near future, but, but deeply, fully, richly. A happiness that satisfies all the longings of your soul. Does that sort of happiness even exist? Well, the answer to this question happens to be what Psalm 1 is all about. 
in the very first word of the very first psalm, we see the word blessed. Blessed is the man. And this is an important word for understanding the purpose of Psalm 1. Because the next six verses are all about how a person can be blessed. But interestingly enough, this word could also be rightly translated as happy. So when our text says, blessed is the man, you could say it is also saying, happy is the person who abides by this way of life. So as we turn our attention this morning to Psalm 1, keep this at the forefront of your mind. Because Psalm 1 serves as an introduction, not only to the entire Psalter, but it is a blueprint that shows God's design and how we can construct a life that will make us happy. So to boil this passage down to a single sentence, we learn from Psalm 1 that true happiness is found in turning away from sin by knowing and delighting in God through the means of his word. True happiness is found in turning away from our sin by knowing and delighting in God through the means of his word. So that's the main idea of our passage this morning. And to help us understand what this means for our lives, we will unpack this psalm by looking at three different points in the text. So let's jump into our first point this morning. Happy Christians are turning away from sin. Verse 1 of our text says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So this psalm begins not with what the happy person does, but actually with what the happy person does not do. The truly blessed man, a person who finds genuine happiness, does not live a life of sin. We see this by simply noticing the poetic progression of the psalmist in verse 1. He does not walk. He does not stand. He does not sit in patterns of sin. And one reason among many for this is because sin cannot truly make us happy. As humans, we are created in the image of God to know God and to enjoy God through his creation. And sin is the irrational and insane attempt to find happiness in anything outside of God. But that is why sin is so deceiving and why it is so alluring. Because sin promises to make us happy. And that is why we do it. That is why we love it. That is why we return to it. That is why even as believers who know the truth, we still struggle against our fleshly desires. You could say that sin is the pursuit of happiness in the wrong things. Or you could say sin is misplaced worship. And the reason that I draw our attention to this underlying aspect about sin is because in order for us to turn away from sin, we must understand that it attacks us on the most intimate levels of who we are. That is, within our desires. So let's consider the significance of the authorship of Psalm 1 to help us understand this. So David wrote Psalm 1. David is the second monarch of the nation of Israel, who would also go on to write Psalm 32, where he will recount what it feels like when he tries to find happiness in sin. Remember, this is a man who while he should be off in battle, yet in his boredom decides to take for himself a woman that is married to one of his soldiers, Uriah. And when he gets her pregnant, he tries to cover it up by bringing Uriah home to sleep with his wife. 
But Uriah won't even go in his house because he's loyal to his men who are still off at war. And so David turns to a new plan. And he has his general, Joab, put Uriah in the heat of battle where he dies so that David can at least appear justified in having this man's wife who is now a widow. Now this affair and this murder did not happen in five minutes. It wasn't even five days. It was probably more like six months. So for at least six months, David walked in unrepentant sin. Why would he do this? Well, because he was looking for happiness. He was looking for happiness in his lustful desires. He was looking for happiness in power. He was looking for happiness in reputation. As strange as it is, it was looking for happiness in murder. He was looking for happiness in not having to be publicly scrutinized, not being found out after the fact. But David did not find what he was looking for. On the contrary, he will go on to write in Psalm 32, he says, When I kept silent, meaning when I didn't repent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night God's hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. So David describes his experience of trying to live in sin. He is physically, emotionally, spiritually miserable. His sin did not give him what he thought it would give him. It did not make him happy. But you know what did make him happy? He writes in the next verse of Psalm 32, I acknowledged my sin to the Lord. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And then he goes on to write a familiar word to us this morning. He says, blessed is the one. Or as we could say, happy is the person whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man, happy are the people against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. And he concludes Psalm 32 with this. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. So church, what we learn from David's very dramatic and public sin is that it brought him to a place of genuine repentance, where under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he is writing to us today about the pursuit of happiness. What makes a person happy? Not our sin. But the blessedness of forgiveness, the joy of sins covered by a faithful Savior, the happiness of knowing a God that we were created to enjoy. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but blessed is the man. Blessed is the person who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, who does not stand in the way of sinners, and who does not sit in the seat of scoffers. Sin will never make us happy. In verse 2, our passage takes a transition. The psalmist moves away from the prohibition of sin that keeps us from happiness, and he turns our attention to the commendation of where we find true happiness. And this brings us to point number two. Happy Christians are seeking to delight in God through the means of his word. One consistent theme throughout all of scripture is that of put off sin 
and put on righteousness. Put to death the flesh and sow to the spirit. And this teaches us something about the fight against sin. The best way, actually the only effective way, to fight against our sin is to replace it with something better. Remember, we are by nature humans in pursuit of happiness. And so if we only turn from our sin and we have no real sense of direction of where to go, then we may find ourselves, as the Proverbs say, like a dog returning back to eat our own pile of vomit. Even though we know our sin doesn't make us happy, it won't be enough to keep us from returning to it. But the psalmist knows this about humans. He knows this about himself. The psalmist knows that the pursuit of true happiness, yes, it entails the putting off of sin, but even more so, it involves the treasuring of God for all that he is. And this is the best way that we fight sin. We fight sin by engaging it on the same level that it tempts us. That is, our desires. We sin because we love our sin. And we will overcome our habits of sin only if our desires are met by something greater than sin. The psalmist writes in verse 2 about a happiness that far surpasses all the sinful temptations of the world. He writes that the blessed person's delight is in God. The happy person fights against their sin with the weapon of delight. Think think about the implication of this. That the desires that lead you to sin can be redeemed by God's grace. And upon this redemption, your desires become the very weapon upon which you fight your sin. We fight sin by delighting in God. God. We fight sin with the stronger desire of knowing and enjoying God. And and this is so soundly logical because as our creator, God is the only thing in all of the universe that can truly satisfy the longings of our hearts. We were made by God to know God and to enjoy God forever. As Augustine pointed out in the fourth century, Our souls are restless until they find rest in God. And that is the case because those who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good are those who have experienced true happiness, who have experienced immeasurable joy as they find their right place in existence as worshipers of the one true living God. You see, the goal of the Christian life is worship. The goal is enjoyment of God. The goal is that we might find happiness that our souls are searching and longing to experience. You see, the, the innate desire of humans to find true happiness for Christians, it, it begins and it ends and it is always related to God. The psalmist tells us how to also stir and cultivate these desires. Because the question inevitably rises, how do we get there? What if as Christians we, we don't really feel that way about God? What if as Christians do we wonder if there's something wrong with us if we find our delight in the Lord to be subpar? So what do we do? Well, the psalmist addresses this as well. He not only tells us the end goal of our desires, he tells us the means by which we get there. And the means is in verse 2b. He says that the blessed man meditates on the law of the Lord. 
So meditation is the means by which believers delight in the Lord. And this goes back to the design with which how God has made humans. So our minds, the place where meditation happens, are given to us to serve our hearts, the place where delighting happens. So meditation is about engaging the activity of our minds upon the knowledge of the Lord. And the end goal of this knowledge is delight. So do you see the connection here in our passage? This is a cause and effect. The cause is the person meditating on the word of God, verse 2b. And the effect is that they delight in the God of the word, verse 2a. So this means if we want to deeply love God, we must commit ourselves to know God. God gives us minds that are intended to serve our hearts. And we'd probably do well to clarify that this is the opposite practice of an Eastern Hindu sort of meditation. So whereas that meditation clears and empties the mind, meditation, as described in Scripture, is about the filling up of the mind. It is about the filling up of the mind with truths about God. It involves the intentional and spiritual study of the Scriptures. So one way we can apply this to our lives is just by simply being aware that there is always a close connection between our affections for the Lord and our obedience to study the Word of God. So anytime I have had the opportunity to counsel people, I have learned to ask some preliminary questions about their life. I'll ask about their diet. I'll ask about exercise. I'll ask about their sleep, their work habits. If they're teenagers, I'll ask how much time they spend playing video games, what kind of music they listen to, how much time they spend on their phone. And what this does, it helps me get a better picture of Different things in their life that might be exasperating their circumstances without them even realizing it. But then I also ask about the Bible. I ask how often they open the Bible. I ask how they read the Bible. I'll even ask how they feel about the Bible. Because there is so often a correlation between a believer's life problems and their neglect to study Scripture. Now, I want to be careful how I phrase this. I'm not saying that every problem in life is as simple as someone studying more of the Bible. I'm not saying that. But here's what I am saying. And what I have seen more than anything else in counseling is that everything is more difficult and everything is exasperated when believers neglect the simple study of Scripture. So many Christians want help out of their sin. So many Christians are looking for relief from anxiety or depression or others need help walking through pain and suffering. But all of these things will become exasperated when the simple discipline of Bible meditation is neglected. You see, it's not just about reading the Bible either. It's about following the Bible's own prescribed way of studying Scripture. It is about a constant meditation on the Word of God. So if we are unwilling to do that, then we ought not to be surprised if we do not delight in the Lord and continue to fall into patterns of sin that we struggle with. So church, we must follow the prescription of the psalmist. We must follow the prescription of God himself for the means by which we fight our sin and find true happiness. And that is the obedience 
to meditate on the word of God. Consider what the Puritan Thomas Watson points out about the importance of Bible study and meditation. He said, the reason we have come away so cold from reading the word is because we do not warm ourselves at the fires of meditation. You see, God has given us the gift of our mind and he commands that we engage with him fully in his word. And so if we want to feel deeply about God, we must engage God with our minds. This is what John Piper has called the duty of delight. We have a duty to meditate on the scriptures for the purpose of delighting in the God of the scriptures. The job of the Christian is the duty of delight. So if you are here today and you have never really established a a pattern in your life of meditating on scripture, or maybe you have fallen out of your routine, or maybe you're still there and you're still reading scripture every day, but you feel stuck in your current pattern of reading, I want to offer some very brief uh, and, and simple points of application to help us meditate on scripture. So there's five. First, when you study the Bible, pray to God. When you study the Bible, pray to God. God speaks to us through his word. And so how appropriate that we would talk back to him through prayer. Prayer is intended to be interwoven into our study of scripture. Scripture is not a math textbook. You're supposed to feel things. You're supposed to love things. You're supposed to talk about things. And so when you open the Bible to hear from God, talk back to him in prayer. Second thought of application. When you study the Bible... Try reading less and meditating more. There are many great ways to study the Bible, but if you leave your time in the Word and you can't remember a single thing that you have read, it might be that you are reading too much. So try reading less words and spend more time analyzing the text. Read less and meditate more. Third point of application, when you study the Bible, keep a pen in your hand. So unless you're reading your family's fourth generation family heirloom bible there's no rule there's no reason that you can't mark it up as you go there is something about writing that opens the mind so as you go look for patterns circle words that are repeated highlight themes that you notice or my favorite put a question mark by everything that you that that you don't know and that stumps you and then go back and find your answers But when you study the Bible, do it with a pen in your hand. Fourth, when you study the Bible, look for a verse to memorize. One often neglected practice of Bible study is the discipline of scripture memory. If we want to take the Bible with us, if we want to meditate on it day and night, then we either have to walk around like this or we have to memorize it. So if you plan to take the Bible with you to work, If you want it with you as you're spanking a child, when you go to school, when you're in the car, when you're at sports practice, then you have to memorize it. So pick one passage of scripture to memorize. This is how we will meditate on the word day and night. And then finally, when you study the Bible, talk about what you are learning with others. So one way to know if you are remembering what you're studying is is to see whether or not you can share with a friend whatever it is you are meditating on in your devotion. So I'm sort of stealing this practice from Aaron and it's sort of part of his sermon prep each week. 
So Aaron will call me uh, before work in the morning, and he'll just sort of just talk me through his sermon, whatever he's going to preach. And what that does for him is it's just sort of helping him think through it and seeing if he's really understanding the passage. And so I would just say, let's apply this to our Bible reading. Not only would it be good for preaching, but, but it's effective for all of us. So whatever you're reading in the Bible, can you share it with your children? Can you share it with your spouse or your friend or your parent? Can you share it with your boyfriend or your girlfriend? Whoever will listen to you, share with them what you are meditating on from Scripture. Because if you can share it, then you know you aren't just reading, but you are meditating. You are studying the Word of God. One of my favorite examples of a man who understood the difference between checking off a list of reading your Bible in the morning and actually caring for your soul was George Mueller. So if you don't know, George Mueller was an evangelist. He was particularly famous for running orphanages in England in the 19th century. He was notorious for waking up way too early to spend hours reading the Bible and praying to God. And he once said this of his routine. He said, the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day is to have my soul happy in the Lord. That's our job. The the job of, of every believer The first and primary task before any other business is attended to is to make our souls happy in the Lord. Before diapers get changed, before breakfast is made, before music is played, before Instagram is browsed, before emails are checked, before customers are responded to, before we even worry about our teenagers, before we start our day, we must make our souls happy in the Lord. This is the duty of delight. This is about the pursuit of true happiness. And this practice of of thinking about your devotion time as making your soul happy in Jesus, what it will do is it, it will inform the rest of your day. It will prove to make your day fruitful and effective as your soul is happy in the Lord and is ready to turn from sin and walk in the truth. So on a very practical level, let me just encourage you, write this quote down from George Mueller. Write it down and put it on a note card and keep it in your Bible. And, and just let this quote serve you as a, as a bookmark for why you are in the Word. You are not there to check it off a list. You are not there to have God accept you. You are not there to even learn a bunch of Bible stories. That may be the adverse effect. You are in the pages of Scripture to make your soul happy in the Lord. This brings us to our third and final point this morning. Happy Christians become like trees. Verse 3 says, The blessed man is a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. So here we are given a picture of what the blessed Christian is like. Happy Christians are like trees. And just like trees, our growth may feel not very significant from day to day. It may not feel like we are growing and changing after five days of doing our devotion. But like the growth of an oak tree, our growth largely goes unnoticed day to day. But what about year to year? And certainly decade to decade, what we will find is that Christians who turn from sin and delight in the Lord just like trees, will find new rings of growth. And you'll notice from verse 3 that unlike some trees who may not find a consistent source of nourishment, 
If we plant ourselves in the word of God, then we will be as happy as an oak tree planted by streams of water. You see, happy and healthy trees have roots that never thirst for nourishment. And that is true for happy Christians. We have, we have the opportunity to be satisfied by streams of living water. And also like the tree, tree, when the wind blows, we are not threatened. When the winds of temptation to sin, of, of being distraught by suffering, of, of being overwhelmed by life in our fallen world, when those winds come, Psalm 1 oak trees will not be knocked over. You will not wither away. Because you have drawn your strength again and again and again in the streams of God that you are planted by. It is what makes you strong. It is what will make you happy. It is what will make you fruitful and cause you to grow. That is the picture offered to us in Psalm 1. You'll also notice the contrast that we are given in the next verse. Verse 4 contrasts the blessed Christian as a tree to the wicked people who are like chaff. Verse 4 says, the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. So you can't get much more opposite to a tree than chaff. These are antonyms. If you don't know, chaff is the unusable substance on a strand of wheat. And in the ancient world, chaff was separated from the grains of wheat through a process called threshing. You might even remember a few times that Jesus uses this illustration in the Gospels. Now, of course, we have tractor attachments to perform this process of of removing the chaff from the wheat. But if you were to watch a field of wheat be harvested, you can see the chaff as it is just blown away into the air. And the psalmist tells us the wicked are like that. They are like chaff. They're not a small tree. They're not a weed. They're not even a grain of wheat. They are chaff. They're like glorified dust particles. And whereas the wind cannot bully an oak tree, the wind drives away the chaff. And so this passage wants us to ask ourselves, which one are you? Are you a tree or are you chaff? But as we close, let's be careful in how we interpret this passage. The Bible teaches us that apart from Christ, we are all wicked. And so if we're honest with ourselves, verse 4 actually describes each of us apart from the grace of of God. Because by sin, because of sin, we are by nature not trees, but chaff. And this observation brings us to one final thing that must be seen about this passage, the most important thing to notice. So notice in verse 1 that the blessed man is stated in the singular. Blessed is the man, singular. And then notice in verse 4 that the wicked are stated in the plural. The wicked are not so, plural. So while there is one blessed man, there is a plurality of wicked people. And this is the true hope of our passage this morning. The most important thing we learn from Psalm 1 is the good news of the gospel. That Christ, the one true blessed man, has made a way for the wicked to become blessed. And Christ has accomplished this by being the true blessed man who during his life on earth lived a perfect life. He never once stood or walked or sat in the way of the wicked. He constantly meditated on the word of God and he delighted in the God of the word. He has become our fortress as the one true mighty oak tree that will never be moved. And the best part about our passage is that because of his mercy, he invites verse four people to become verses one through three people. 
By his mercy, he makes the wicked right, and he invites us in to experience true happiness of a life that turns from sin and delights in the Lord. And by a work of grace, we can become like our Savior. We can become like oak trees who grow up into his image and after his likeness. Jesus Christ is the only way that the wicked become blessed. And he is the only one who can truly make us happy. Psalm 1 teaches us that true happiness is found in turning from our sin by knowing and delighting in God through the means of his word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Psalm 1. We thank you for this big vision of what our very ordinary Christian lives can be through the means of faithful obedience, Lord. As you welcome us into the blessed living of being a part of your family. And Lord, I just pray that you would empower us by your grace to turn from our sin, to turn towards you by being diligent and obedient to meditate on your word. And Lord, we pray that you would, by a work of your spirit, help us to delight in you. Lord, that we would not fall back into patterns of sin, but that we would live a lifestyle of repentance as we see you to be far more satisfying than anything the world has to offer. And Lord, that little by little, we might grow and that we might progress and that we might become like you. Oak trees that are not easily moved by wind. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for your word. And we thank you for Mother's Day and and, and how much a, a mother means to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Church, as we leave here today, receive these words from Numbers chapter 6. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Happy Mother's Day.